0: Is the world getting the best science-based solutions for COVID-19? Or are there vested interests with deep pockets controlling the discourse? Are the agencies we rely on for human welfare, like the WHO, the CDC, the NIH, the FDA, and heads of states, actually responsible for the millions of deaths during the pandemic? To answer these questions, I have a very important guest. Please watch this video till the very end and share it widely, for a lot is at stake. Namaste, this is Vijaya Vishwanathan for the Infinity Foundation channel. My guest is a well-published, board-certified doctor with decades of experience in the forefront of medicine. His unique treatment protocols have saved many lives during this pandemic. And yet, instead of hailing him as a hero, His voice is silenced. I'm gonna read a brief profile about Dr. Paul Marek, who's my guest today. And I'm sure I will not do justice to his vast background and deep knowledge. Dr. Marek received his medical degree and was an ICU attending in South Africa before getting his critical care fellowship in Ontario, Canada. During which time he was admitted as a fellow to the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons in Canada. Dr. Merrick has worked in various teaching hospitals in the U.S. since 1992. He is board certified, and get this—he's board certified in internal medicine, critical care medicine, neurocritical care, and nutrition science. Dr. Merrick is currently a full tenured professor of medicine in the United States. Dr. Merrick has written over 500 peer-reviewed journal articles. 80 book chapters and authored four critical care books. He has been cited over 44,000 times in peer-reviewed publications and his H index is 98, which shows the influence of his work in the scientific field. He has delivered over 350 lectures at international conferences. Dr. Merrick is a co-founder of the Frontline COVID Critical Care Alliance, which he founded during the pandemic. I must also say that he's famous for developing effective treatment protocols for many, many diseases and has done the same for COVID-19. I want to welcome Dr. Paul Merrick to the show. Welcome and namaste.
1: Thank you. And it's an honor to be here amongst friends. So thank you.
0: Now, your protocol that you developed at the FLCCC um, has Uh, ivermectin, it's almost become a bad word to use, uh, an off-patent, inexpensive drug um, that seems to work uh, in in the treatment of COVID-19. The New York Times yesterday, interestingly, um, said there's a surge uh, in the demand for ivermectin, uh, but but did not even bother to name the drug. They just called it a dewormer. Uh, and, uh, and said that uh, it doesn't work. And your, the, one of the pillars in your protocol is yes. ivermectin. So tell us about your experience with ivermectin um, in, in, th- in three parts. One, as far as what you personally have observed I know you are also connected with many on-the-ground physicians who are fighting this pandemic all over the world. What do they have to say, anecdotally, or in small clinical trials? And then on, on a really uh, high-level, peer-reviewed research level, uh, what, how do you see ivermectin um, and its role in treating COVID nineteen?
1: Yeah, so you know the, the re, uh, how this all started was this started in March last year where we realized that there, were no, there was no guidance. The WHO, the NIH, the CDC was providing no guidance to clinicians on how to treat this disease. If you remember at the beginning, the WHO said the treatment was symptomatic care. So if you got COVID, you took Tylenol or aspirin. If you were in the ICU, you got fluid. So going back to March and April, people were dying of COVID, and the WHO and the NIH said, there's no treatment, it's all symptomatic care. And okay. as obviously as a clinicians, that's absurd. You can't just sit at the bedside, watch your patients die. So that's what really forced us to put together evidence-based protocols for the treatment of COVID. And it was, all, it was always based on the best available science at that time. And clearly, you know, over the last 18 months, it's evolved. So, you know, when the protocol started, you know, we first, you know, identified corticosteroids as important and vitamin C and D. And probably in about October, we recognized that there was emerging data on ivermectin. You know, it wasn't there at the beginning, but there was emerging body of evidence and the evidence has grown. So the amount of misinformation, disinformation bias is truly astonishing astonishing. It's nothing more Mm -hmm. than lies. So, I mean, you just have to look at the literature. There are 60 clinical trials that have Mm -hmm. looked at ivermectin of which 30 are randomized controlled trials. Mm -hmm. Um, There's probably more, more data on ivermectin than any other therapeutic intervention for COVID. Mm -hmm. And what the randomized trials show almost universally is Decreased time to viral shedding, decreased hospitalization, decreased time to improvement, and decreased mortality.
0: Mm-hmm. That's
1: what the data shows. Now, obviously, there are enormous forces at play that do not like this data or misrepresenting mm-hmm. this data and are lying. But that's mm-hmm. what the data shows. So, you know, we can even look at the meta analysis done by Andrew Hill. Mm -hmm. Andrew Hill was originally. um,
0: With the WHO, right?
1: Recruited by the WHO, and he worked for the WHO, and he did a meta analysis for the WHO. Mm -hmm. And his conclusion was that it was an effective treatment. There was a one in 7,000 chance that he was wrong. The Mm -hmm. WHO then, we know this, decided to change the conclusion of his paper. The WHO rewrote the conclusion of his paper to state there's no evidence. And we know this. So there were ghost writers who changed his paper. He then re-corrected the paper. So, um, you know, the evidence is overwhelming. Now, the current lie perpetuated by the FDA is that Mm -hmm. this is a dangerous drug made for animals only. Right. Let me tell you the truth. 3.7 3.7 billion human beings, human beings have mm-hmm. been treated with ivermectin for parasitic diseases. Right. It has almost changed the face of uh, river blindness and filaria in Africa.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: What do we know in terms of safety? It is one of the safest medications ever made. It is safer than aspirin. More mm-hmm. people have died from aspirin. Than from ivermectin. The, so WHO, the safety
0: profile is very uh, you know, very good for ivermectin, is what you're saying.
1: It's robust. Mm-hmm. It's it's one of the safest medications ever prescribed. And you know what? You can go to the WHO's website. Do so they have a website called Pharmacovigilance, mm-hmm. where they track the side effects and deaths of medications for the last 25 years. Mm-hmm. If you go there and you look at ivermectin, it will list 16 deaths and 4,000 adverse events. And we think most of those deaths were due to the parasite. Okay. If on the same website, you look at the adverse events due to the SARS-CoV-2 vaccine, Mm -hmm. which is six months, Mm -hmm. they list over 9,000 deaths and 1.7 million serious adverse events. And this excludes the 12,000 deaths in the U.S. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. they're so-called 16 deaths of ivermectin over 25 years. Mm -hmm. And there are now over 20,000 deaths in a few months with the SARS-CoV-2 vaccine. Mm -hmm. They're saying that the vaccine is safe, and yet ivermectin is a dangerous, toxic drug which kills people.
0: Okay, I have a small video clip that I want to play, um, and you can comment on it. Uh, It has some of the things that you've mentioned, but it's more for our viewers as well. The WHO's chief scientist, Dr. Soumya Swaminathan, had put out a statement against the use of ivermectin to treat COVID-19. In May 2021, Dr. Swaminathan had tweeted, I quote, The WHO recommends against the use of ivermectin for COVID-19 except within clinical trials, quote. The FDA, similarly, had recently tweeted conflating ivermectin for animals with that for humans and put out a tweet. You are not a horse, you are not a cow. Seriously, y'all, stop it. Why you should not use ivermectin to treat or prevent COVID-19? Recently, Dr. Vivek Murthy, who is the Surgeon General of the United States, went on CNN to say that ivermectin is not a drug that should be used either to prevent or treat COVID-19. And
1: let me just say very clearly that ivermectin is not a recommended treatment for COVID-19. It is not a recommended drug to prevent COVID-19. The best protection we have against COVID-19 is the vaccine. And if you get COVID-19, we actually do have treatments that work from steroids uh, to monoclonal antibodies and other treatments. But ivermectin is not one of them.
0: Apollo Hospitals is a private hospital chain in India, headquartered in Chennai, Tamil Nadu. People have looked to Apollo for treatment guidance during the pandemic. In May 2021, they put out this statement.
2: So if we go by the scientific evidence and evidence-based medicine, there is no randomized controlled trial which has shown that the ivermectin works. In fact, there are all the trials, in fact, the company who manufactures ivermectin, that is the MSD, itself have claimed that ivermectin is not to be used for COVID-19 infection. Recently, the WHO came out with a statement saying that ivermectin has not been proven therapy for COVID-19 infection. Yes, even in some of the state guidelines, the ivermectin, doxycycline, azithromycin are being prescribed for mild to moderate patients. But if you ask me scientifically, there is no evidence that the ivermectin works. So I would suggest that taking these medicines are of, unknown, of no use. The only use of ivermectin is basically if the patient is going to be on steroids, that time to prevent strongyloides hyperinfection, which is a parasitic infection, to prevent them, a single or two doses of ivermectin is sufficient. And after that, it should be stopped. But role of ivermectin as an anti-COVID agent is not proven. And we should not support the use of
0: as you can see, uh, this information... Uh... If, you know is what you think it trickles down from the WHO to the big agencies into hospitals that are influential and is really affecting uh, the way we treat covid-19 so um, so please tell us what is it that, that there is such a systematic push back against ivermectin so there must be something i mean the safety profile of ivermectin seems to be good so why would anyone even if it didn't work why would anyone take so much trouble to go out and put out these messages on social media and actually discourage doctors from prescribing ivermectin
1: yeah so we'll come to that in a second you know what the surgeon general said was absolutely wrong there are at least four or five randomized controlled trials that are very Mm -hmm. well powered and Mm -hmm. done under the best of circumstances in which healthcare workers were randomized to ivermectin or placebo. And Mm -hmm. it caused a dramatic reduction in the risk of getting COVID. So Mm -hmm. there there is voluminous data, you know, these people are blind, they don't want to see the truth. Mm -hmm. So, and you know, it's not just one researcher, it's across the world, you know, Mm -hmm. multiple countries across the world. So it would have to be some kind of major conspiracy for all these scientists to come up with this falsehood. So there are multiple studies in multiple countries in multiple circumstances showing the effectiveness of ivermectin. Mm -hmm. So the question is why? So what you need to do is follow the money. You've heard Mm -hmm. the saying, follow the money. So ivermectin is a cheap, effective drug.
0: Mm -hmm. The WHO has
1: access to six milligram tablets at two cents a tablet. Wow. Let me say that again. The WHO has access to six milligram tablets of ivermectin in their mass distribution program. It costs two cents. Mm -hmm. You cannot make money from ivermectin. However, Mm -hmm. they will sell you remdesivir. So mm-hmm. remdesivir is one of two treatments approved for use in the United States of America. Mm-hmm. It costs three to $4,000 a course of, of remdesivir. And mm-hmm. if you look at the most recent study, mm-hmm. no effect on mortality, increased length of hospitalization. So mm-hmm. this all has to do with money. money. It has to do with um, big pharma it has mm-hmm. to do with the influence of big pharma. And mm-hmm. that's the bottom line. Is It has nothing to do with the health and well-being of humans on this planet. It has to do with profiteering and making money off human misery and death.
0: Yeah. In fact, I was in Tamil Nadu uh I was in India last month in the state of Tamil Nadu in Chennai and I just did a a random market survey, I went to four pharmacies and asked for ivermectin and they said they do not have a supply and uh, in Kerala we see the deaths in Kerala is the highest it's more than 50% of all the infections in all of India. You have in Kerala. Again, these two states, Tamil Nadu's chief minister is uh, M.K. Stalin um, and the, I, the policies that they have put out is to remove ivermectin from the protocol. And similarly in Kerala. Kerala had ivermectin and then early August they removed ivermectin from the protocols. And they, you can see anecdotally as a common man, as a layperson, that there is something going on here. And uh, and contrasted to Uttar Pradesh, uh, where the chief minister is uh, Yogi Adityanath Ji, the ivermectin is used as, as a prophylactic and, uh, and also for a treatment. And also contact tracing, when they do, they give the people whom um, uh, the infected persons come in contact with a dose of ivermectin. And this has sort of precipitously dropped the rates in Uttar Pradesh. So anecdotally, as a layman, you can, you can see these things happening. Uh, but unfortunately, um, it is so deeply entrenched that even physicians are refusing to prescribe. Uh, ivermectin now what do you think makes i don't think every every physician is paid off but what do you is this a group think of sorts um so what is making the average physician refuse ivermectin to a patient even in the united states uh when the safety profile really you know is it seems to be benign
1: yeah so i think firstly they're scared because Mm -hmm. of the powers of the fda Mm -hmm. many Hospital systems are banning the use of ivermectin. So Mm -hmm. I think doctors are being intimidated and they're being scared. So there Mm -hmm. are some doctors who, you know, they do what's the right thing. They Mm -hmm. provide the best care for the patient in front of them, which is Mm -hmm. what your responsibility as a doctor is you Mm -hmm. do the best you can for the patient in front of you. And they will will prescribe ivermectin. So Mm why the FDA is now gone completely ballistic is Mm -hmm. because the legal now we're talking about legal prescriptions for ivermectin has skyrocketed Mm -hmm. because people know there's an alternative. So Mm -hmm. the FDA has done this as a retaliation because Mm -hmm. of the massive increase in the number of legal prescriptions written for ivermectin. Mm -hmm. Ivermectin is an FDA approved drug. It's being used off label. But as you know, between 20 to 30% of drugs that physicians prescribe are legal Mm -hmm. drugs, which are used off-label. It's Mm -hmm. perfectly sound medical. As long as the doctor has sound medical judgment, it's perfectly legal. But Mm -hmm. I think, firstly, I don't think many doctors understand the the strength of the evidence. They're Mm -hmm. being influenced by the media. And the media Mm -hmm. is... Very powerful, the media is basically controlled by big pharma, and all mm-hmm. you have to do is listen to the media, and all you hear about is ivermectin's a toxic drug for humans, it's only for horses. Mm-hmm. And obviously, if you hear that over and over again, you start believing it.
0: Mm-hmm. They don't tell mm-hmm.
1: you that 3.7 billion that's a B billion people have been treated with ivermectin it has mm-hmm. one of the safest medication profiles of any drug they don't tell you the truth mm-hmm. so doctors are misinformed and they i think they're being blindsided by all this government pharmaceutical propaganda
0: Right. But what about pharmacies? Now we hear in the US that even though a doctor prescribes ivermectin to the patient, uh, the pharmacies refuse to uh, fill in these prescriptions. Do the pharmacists have the right? The pharmacies have a right to block uh, what the, pres- the physician prescribes. Um, is there a legal suit that one can, you know, lawsuit that, that one can put and say, hey, my doctors, this is between me and my physician, and the pharmacy is just uh, aiding the process? Uh, of, of, of our treatment.
1: So you're absolutely right. I mean, if a f- physician writes a legal prescription and it's the correct dose, the pharmacy really has an obligation to fill it. However, mm-hmm. in some states in the US, apparently some pharmacists are allowed to exercise their judgment, whatever mm-hmm. that means.
0: That means.
1: So they, they are refusing. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, it could be challenged in court which is mm-hmm. a difficult thing. You know, what we suggest is just go to a different pharmacy because mm-hmm. um, you know, it, it's a contract between the patient and the doctor. Now, mm-hmm. if obviously the, the physician wrote for the wrong dose or there was a severe drug interaction, then the pharmacist could say, Hey, you know what, there's a problem with the script and speak to the physician. But mm-hmm. he, they can't just off the bat refuse. But we know that this is happening and it's part of the pressure being exerted on pharmacy chains, on pharmacists, not Mm -hmm. to prescribe a legal drug.
0: Some of these scientists who are credible in universities uh, also don't come forth and, and talk about Uh, The effectiveness of uh, ivermectin. Tell us about the relationship between Dr. Fauci, the NIH and how funding is given out to major universities. Um, Does that affect certain kinds of research? Does it direct research in certain directions? Um, Do scientists and universities really have the academic freedom to pursue real science and to solve uh, real world problems?
1: So that's the myth of scientific freedom, even in the U.S. is a myth. Mm-hmm. Even the major medical journals like the New England Journal of Medicine and Lancet are controlled by Big Pharma. It's mm-hmm. outrageous. So I don't mm-hmm. think there is such a thing as academic freedom and scientific freedom. And mm-hmm. so the NIH uh, gets into contractual relationships with companies mm-hmm. and that once that patented drug, the NIH gets a certain amount of the revenue. So they make a lot of money from Mm -hmm. these patented drugs under development, including Mm -hmm. the vaccines. Mm -hmm. So I'm not an expert on this, but this is my understanding. Obviously, it's a cheap repurposed drugs. They're not going to make any money. What I find astonishing is I don't think Dr. Fauci has treated a single COVID patient. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. he's telling physicians across the world how to treat mm-hmm. COVID. I mm-hmm. don't think he's treated a single COVID patient.
0: The same and could be someone, said for Dr. Swaminathan, Somia Swaminathan, who sits on the WHO, who, uh, you know, who in fact immediately criticizes if ivermectin is used in India somewhere, immediately, you know, go on, um, on, on the media channels and say that this is a terrible thing. Yeah.
1: So you know what I mean? COVID is a terrible disease. It's mm-hmm. a challenging disease. You have to actually treat patients with COVID to understand the disease. So -hmm. these are what I call Hollywood doctors that they, they act like a doctor on the movies, but they absolutely know nothing about medicine and don't see patients. And -hmm. there's a big difference between a real doctor and a Hollywood doctor.
0: Right. Um, Very well said, uh, Dr. Merrick. Now the critics of ivermectin still want a large randomized um, controlled trial uh, to prove that ivermectin is indeed an effective alternative now are there ethical issues um, in doing a randomized trial um, you know during a pandemic uh, giving a sick patient a placebo so a patient walks in and you're, you know you're in this uh, in this uh, endeavor to do a randomized trial to write a, your own publish your own paper but then it's at, it's at the cost of patients so tell me what you feel about it. Is this, so should we use randomized controlled trials as the gold standard? Is, is there a new way to look at how we do medicine, how we conduct research? Uh, because the randomized trials could be appropriate in some situations, but not in all.
1: So you asked a really good question and you really asked the question, if you were the patient, would you want to be in a randomized trial where you've got placebo? That's the question. I don't think there's anybody... who who has COVID, who's really sick, who would actually want to get placebo. Firstly, Mm -hmm. secondly, what's important is there's no magic bullet. Even Mm -hmm. ivermectin, we never recommend ivermectin alone. It's part Mm -hmm. of a package of medications that work together. So it's very difficult to prove that in a randomized study, you know, Mm -hmm. because, you know, you're not testing one drug against placebo. You're testing a combination of medications. Mm -hmm. So firstly... I think it's unfeasible. Secondly, it's immoral and unscientific, and it it contravenes the Geneva Accord in the midst of a pandemic to give people placebo when there are potentially effective therapies. Mm -hmm. It's immoral, and it goes against the basic premise of the Hippocratic Oath and the provision of medicine. You cannot give a... A placebo to somebody who has acute illness at risk of dying—it's just not fair. And we're in the midst of a pandemic. You know, it's fine if you know you you, you want to look at treatment for colon cancer. You can th- be thoughtful about it. You can randomize patients to different regimens. You'd never mm-hmm. randomize them to placebo. You know, mm-hmm. you would compare different chemo protocols. I think mm-hmm. you would never say, "Oh." We're going to give you this combination of medicines, or you're going to get placebo. That's yeah. just unethical. Yeah.
2: So, you know, I think
1: this complete obsession with randomized controlled trials in the midst of a pandemic is fine for trialists. A, tri- a trialist is a person who sits in an office and looks at spreadsheets. They mm-hmm. do not look after patients. Mm-hmm. When you look after patients, when you adopt at the bedside, then you can tell. Mm -hmm. What's what's legitimate and what isn't? So these are, these are ivory tower people who Mm -hmm. look after spreadsheets and not patients. And it's immoral and unethical not to provide the patient in front of you with the best care you can. Because if it was your mother, your father, your sister, your brother, that's what you would demand.
0: Right, right, right. Thank you so much. Now, help us understand this a bit better. A year and a half has gone by. Uh, and now a patient, so the protocol, so you have an SLCC protocol, which we'll talk about later, but the, the current, the FDA, CDC recommended protocol. So I'm a patient, I walk into a clinic with, with a test result, which shows I'm COVID positive. Um, according to the CDC guidelines, what is it uh, what is the treatment that I should be getting um, yeah. according to the... So that's a good question.
1: Yeah. Until recently, the NIH and the CDC and the WHO, their position was if you are an outpatient and have COVID, there's no effective treatment. You go home and you stay at home until you go blue and you can't breathe. Uh-huh. When you can't breathe and you're blue and cyanotic, then you go to a hospital. Mm -hmm. They were, they were, and most of the NIH guidelines still say the same thing. There's no effective early treatment. So the only thing that has changed slightly is the use of monoclonal antibodies, Mm
0: -hmm. which are
1: really expensive. Mm
0: -hmm. Okay. So there's a
1: randomized controlled trial, which looked, I think 4,000 people with early COVID, they looked at randomized controlled trial. The Mm -hmm. endpoint was the composite of hospitalization and death. Mm-hmm. What they don't report is deaths
0: okay. because
1: if you actually dig into it, there was no difference, oh. no difference. Okay.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: What mm-hmm. the study showed was a small reduction in the risk of hospitalization using okay. expensive monoclonal antibodies.
2: Okay. So you
1: can see where this goes is that they only have an interest in the use of expensive drugs that are very inconvenient to administer, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. Things like vitamin D, vitamin C, zinc, which are mm-hmm. easily administered and cheap. They don't want to talk about. I right. think vitamin D is essential, You mm-hmm. know, particularly in people of color because their mm-hmm. vitamin D levels are low. It's mm-hmm. important in people north of 40 degrees latitude. It's mm-hmm. important in obese people and elderly people. We know that vitamin D deficiency increases your risk of getting COVID and dying from mm-hmm. COVID. Right. It's such a simple thing to say. Take vitamin D. They Correct. won't do
0: it. Right, right. It has, and you can't make money out of it. Uh, let me ask you, uh, because you are recommending ivermectin uh, for prevention, not just treatment right? Do you think you're seen as someone who is discouraging vaccinations and therefore people who are vaccine hesitant anyway would now say, um, okay, I, I can either take the vaccines or do prophylaxis with ivermectin and uh, and, and maybe the CDC and the FDA want more people to stay, to be vaccinated. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. So our position always has been that ivermectin is a bridge to vaccination. I think yes. there's something like 6.7 billion people on this planet, and it's going mm-hmm. to take a really long time to vaccinate all of them. Mm-hmm. Secondly, 50% of the vaccines has gone to 15% of the world's population. Is mm-hmm. The pharmaceutical companies do not want to sell their vaccine to low-income and middle-income countries because they mm-hmm. want to make money. So what about those countries? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think that it's a bridge to vaccination. Now, of course, if there are people who don't want to be vaccinated, that's their right. I mean, you mm-hmm. can't force a medical therapy on a person. Mm-hmm. And if they choose to use ivermectin as prophylaxis, well, that's mm-hmm. their choice. It's not something we be advocating, but that is their choice. And mm-hmm. we know in terms of healthcare workers that, who've been given ivermectin, it provides very effective prophylaxis.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, mm-hmm. you know, and then, as I said, there are people who've been vaccinated who are now getting mm-hmm. COVID. So mm-hmm. our protocols are valid for vaccinated and unvaccinated people. It. So uh, you, you're right. I think that the, the attitude of the FDA and CDC is they think of ivermectin as a threat because according to them, mm-hmm vaccinations are safe and effective and everybody must be vaccinated that's Mm -hmm. the party line vaccinate Mm -hmm. everybody even if you've had COVID and have good immunity that doesn't matter Mm -hmm. vaccinate everybody because it's safe and effective and we do know there's recent data showing that if you've had a natural infection and natural Mm -hmm. immunity your Mm -hmm. protection against COVID is much better than if you get the vaccine
0: yeah, but there's also some debate on that. Many people don't disagree that uh, with the, I mean, the mainstream media, the the information that they put out is that they want even people who've had COVID nineteen uh, exposure to be vaccinated all over again.
1: So yes, the reason they do that is they want everyone to be vaccinated, no questions asked. Everyone get vaccinated. That's the policy. Everyone vaccinated. If they start finding groups to exclude. Then it will, you know, it will build and build and build. They don't want to do that. Their attitude right. is vaccinate everybody.
0: Right in Israel, so, I mean, we've, had, we've seen, in, you know, in Israel, uh, Dr. Malik, we've seen that um, uh, most of the population is indeed vaccinated, and we've seen breakthrough cases coming out. Uh, which no one talks about in the mainstream media again. And in the uh, in America too, you, you're beginning to see co- uh, people who've been vaccinated get reinfections and sometimes quite seriously. Uh, there is something called antibody-dependent enhancement. And how big is the issue of antibody-dependent enhancement, n- given that we know that it can happen with this virus?
1: Yeah, so that's a really good question. And the answer is it's a theoretical possibility
0: mm-hmm.
1: whether it actually is going to happen. So, you know, we know with dengue that mm-hmm. if you have dengue one time you do okay, but the second time you get dengue, you have a mm-hmm. really bad reaction. And mm-hmm. it has to do with the fact that the antibodies are no longer neutralizing, but actually enhancing. So, mm-hmm. it, so people have looked at this and it depends very much on the antibody titer. So Mm -hmm. as people's immunity wanes, and we know with natural infection and with vaccination, your antibody levels decline. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't happen early up front. It's not going to be seen in the the studies, but as Mm -hmm. your antibody levels fall to quite low levels, the Mm -hmm. antibodies then may be enhancing and -hmm. not protecting. So they Mm -hmm. actually... They actually activate complement, which is an inflammatory process and actually Mm -hmm. can aid in getting the virus in the cell. So it Mm -hmm. is a theoretical possibility that you can actually, that these non-neutralizing antibodies can make you sicker and make, Mm -hmm. give you severe COVID as Mm -hmm. what happened with dengue. Now that's a theoretical construct, Mm
0: -hmm. whether it's
1: actually happening, we don't know. Okay. So, you know, a lot of people talk about ADE, and mm-hmm. it did happen with some of the early, with the SARS-CoV, the mm-hmm. first SARS, mm-hmm. That in animal models, it did mm-hmm. cause immune enhancement.
0: Okay. So
1: whether it happens with this vaccine and with waning immunity, we don't know yet. No. It is a possibility. Okay. As, mm-hmm. far as, I, as far as I understand it, it's obviously quite complicated.
0: Right. Um, let me switch gears uh, to public health policy, Dr. Marek. India has a large uh, population that's predominantly below the age of 34, pretty much youth. And do you think mass vaccinations create evolutionary pressure uh, pressures on a, on a virus to rapidly mutate and we get more virulent forms uh, rather than just letting it ride? For example, even now we see that the alpha variant which initially um, came out of wuhan seems to be benign compared to the delta variant that we are currently having so do you think uh, the mass vaccination policy on a population that is predominantly young and healthy um, is a, is the right way to go or should we should we just protect uh, portions of vulnerable population, like the elderly and people that are immune system uh, compromised, um, or should we just go blanket and uh, and and vaccinate everybody? Uh, because there could be we could be creating a, a disaster um, with a country like India, especially with such a large population. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, so that's such a good question, and I think things are changing with time. So there mm-hmm. is a virologist in Belgium, Van der Hoef, I think his name is, who basically mm-hmm. predicted months ago that with this mass vaccination, it's going mm-hmm. to put evolutionary pressure on the virus. So mm-hmm. the virus is going to make, mutate to more virulent forms. It's going to mm-hmm. cause breakthrough infections, mm-hmm. and it's going to affect younger people because of mm-hmm. the selective pressure of vaccination. And mm-hmm. it seems like he may be right. Uh-huh. So, you know, I think things have changed from the alpha variant to the delta variant because this one is affecting young, more younger people.
0: Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So
1: what I can say is that there are things people can do to protect themselves, simple uh-huh. things uh-huh. that are very cheap and effective. We spoke uh-huh. about vitamin D, I uh-huh. think vitamin C. Uh-huh. You know, there's very good data now on oropharyngeal sanitization. So Mm -hmm. many of these mouthwashes, Listerine, Scope, badadine, iodine, are viricidal, they potently kill
2: the virus.
1: Mm -hmm. There's an outstanding Mm -hmm. study done in India where they Mm -hmm. took 606 people who had COVID who were Mm -hmm. scared to go to hospital. Mm -hmm. They randomized them to iodine goggle and nose drops versus Mm -hmm. water.
2: Mm -hmm. At day
1: seven, The Uh um, number of PCR positive in the control group was like 70% versus 3%. And there Uh was a a massive difference in deaths. Uh So, very simple measures that people Uh can take themselves against COVID. But right. you know what it's cheap and it's effective and no one wants to talk about talk about,
0: about it correct now on that uh, dr Marek, given that these vested interests are there and there is this pressure for pharmaceutical companies to you know turn in a profit do you think that healthcare as such uh, should be in the hands of pharmaceutical companies should should be should they be in the leadership's position to provide solutions for healthcare should the government be more into drug discovery because they, uh, they can treat a condition and move on versus pharmaceutical companies who would want like you just mentioned a booster um, you know for every variant and they're probably very happy that this has mutated um, it's, and you know they would like things to be in a chronic state as opposed to Uh, treating an illness and being done and eliminating it for good. So do you think as a public health um, uh, policy, we should look at, should we give this um, entire, uh, you know, uh, industry of finding solutions to disease to the in the hands of the pharmaceutical industry? Or should should a neutral government body be taking over this?
1: I mean, you asked such a good question, and fundamentally, that's the problem. So the WHO should be there to represent the interests of people on this planet. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, that's what their charter is. But unfortunately, the WHO, the NIH, CDC are so influenced by big pharma. So I think, you know, we need to evolve to a point where big pharma gets removed from the equation so that, you know, these agencies do what's in the best interests of the population. That should be their prime focus, not on supporting big pharma. Unfortunately, Mm -hmm. big pharma is the biggest contributor to to, um, lobbyists, they control Mm -hmm. the media, they control the press. So Mm -hmm. they have a stranglehold on free speech, scientific investigation, scientific Mm -hmm. integrity. And I think, you know, we, I think COVID has brought out the worst in this respect. And I think it's time that, you know, these organizations should go back to what their goal is, what their fundamental charter is, is to provide the best health to people on this planet. And that profiteering should not be driving this. Right.
0: Um, With the Delta variant, uh, Dr. Marek, what are you seeing? What are you seeing right now? What that has been different from what you saw a year and a half ago? And where do you see this going forward? Is it becoming endemic um, from from being an epidemic? How do you think life is going to change? Or how will life be for all of us a year or two years from now? What's your prediction?
1: You're some Really good questions. And I'm really impressed. So you obviously understand the issue. So, you know, about three or four weeks ago, ICU had no more COVID. And I thought, you know what? Things Mm -hmm. are looking good. Life is looking good. Mm -hmm. And then two or three weeks ago, we were hit with the Delta variant. Mm -hmm. And let me tell you, this Delta variant is a terrible virus. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you have to look, you know, these, you have to look after COVID to understand these these patients are much sicker. Mm -hmm. So it's affecting younger people. It's Mm -hmm. affecting unvaccinated as well as vaccinated. These people have a profound inflammatory response. Mm -hmm. They don't respond as well and they die. So, Mm -hmm. this variant is a deadly variant. And I think Mm -hmm. it's because it replicates to such high concentrations in the nasopharynx. So, Mm -hmm. it spreads quickly. Mm -hmm. The whole, the whole, Time frame is narrow. So usually, you know, mm-hmm. they're symptomatic and then they get short of breath. That whole time frame is narrow. So people mm-hmm. can go from being symptomatic to landing in the ICU in three or four days. This okay. is a very virulent disease. Mm-hmm. So I think we need, you know, the bottom line is you've got to treat people day one, you can't let them progress. And mm-hmm. this is a very deadly variant. And I think the data is now showing that the mortality mm-hmm. is higher with Delta. Okay. The question obviously is, you know, what does the future hold? Mm-hmm. And that's such a difficult question to answer because I think if we look where we've been and where we're going, I think we're going to get more and more virulent mm-hmm. uh, viruses and mm-hmm. Whew, I'm not sure how long this can go on for, but I think, you know, we're in for the long haul. It's going to take a long time. If, if ever to get over this, it, it may mm-hmm. become endemic, who knows, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. you know what? This is a very, this variant is really serious. It's killing mm-hmm. people. It's killing younger people.
0: Mm-hmm. So,
1: you know, with the earlier variants, the first and second wave, most of the patients in our ICU were over the age of 16, mm-hmm. over the age of mm-hmm. 60 you know, mm-hmm. I was in the ICU two weeks ago, almost mm-hmm. all of the patients were less than 60 years old, mm-hmm. 30 mm-hmm. and 40 year olds. And these people mm-hmm. were dying. So
2: mm-hmm. this
1: is a really serious disease. And yeah. the other group of people is, you know, pregnant woman. We had two pregnant women in the ICU who had severe COVID. So mm-hmm. this is not, this is, this disease is no joke. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you're seeing the worst of it all. Um So I hope, uh, Dr. Barik, that people are listening to you. Uh, um, I would love our listeners to go to FLCCC dot net to get protocols that dr merrick and his team have put out um he's doing a wonderful job he's so courageous so uh my pronouns to you for all your work and um i i also uh, would like to invite physicians who who would like to debate dr merrick we'd love to pro- provide a forum and a platform uh and i'd love to moderate uh the debate uh please uh <laughs> dr merrick if you're willing um oh, I'd sure. for, i would you know We love an intellectual scientific debate where everybody has a seat at the table to voice their intellectual research that they have come up with. So um, thank you again for taking the time to be with us. Uh, I know you're a very busy man saving lives and please continue to do all the great work that you're doing. And um, again, thank you so much and namaste.
1: Thank you. And thank you for inviting me. And it was a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you.
0: Likewise, Dr. Marek. Thank you.